Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher with the James Altucher Show, and I am super excited about this next guest. Dan Harris is the anchor of the TV show Nightline. He's also the co-anchor of the weekend edition of Good Morning America. And most importantly for this podcast, he's the author of the just published book, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, a true story. And I totally related to this book because there's been moments in my life where I've been so incredibly stressed and anxious, I would have no idea how I would be able to take the next step in my life. And as I was reading Dan's book, I saw so many parallels. Like, he's been through a lot of different experiences. He was a reporter in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's been all over the world. He's dealt with, you know, the the corporate politics of working for a big television network. So many different experiences. And yet... A lot of the anxieties and fears and panics that he had along the way, I completely related to. And the, his solutions for dealing with them, I also related to. And although the way we came to solutions were slightly different, I really think his approach and the idea of being simply 10% happier is very useful. And it reminds me actually of last week's podcast with Stephen Kotler. Stephen Kotler talks about how you can, how many of these extreme athletes achieve a state of flow, not by trying to achieve something that's a hundred percent greater than they've ever achieved before, but by trying to achieve something that's just four percent greater than they've ever achieved before. Many people ignore the, the positive benefits of small incremental successes. Because it's those small successes, for instance, the idea of being just 10% happier, these things add up. If you're 10% happier every month or every year or however long, you're going to end up being a lot, an extreme amount happier, you know, over the years. And I think this is an important thing to remember. Dan and I talk about it more. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Introducing Dan Harris. Thanks again for having me on, man. I appreciate that. Oh, no, thanks for coming on. I, I super enjoyed your book, so uh, I'm really glad you, you could uh, spend the time here. I'm glad you enjoyed the book, especially since it sounds like we've got a lot, we've got a lot in common. I can't believe um, in your book, uh, almost every name you mentioned, I've read like all the books of those people. So like <laughs> you mentioned Eckhart Tolle, Mark Epstein, you know, Joseph Goldstein, Deepak Chopra. These are all uh, very familiar names to me. I'm, 
a couple of years ago, my brother is a venture. Do you know my brother, by the way? Matt? You know, um, I did some, when I was researching you. Uh, you mentioned that your brother was a venture capitalist. So I researched him. I think I met him actually in early two thousand nine because I was in the Village Ventures offices and Bo Peabody's partner was there, and I think I met him. He he was the one who sort of turned me on to your your stuff uh, a couple of years ago. He sent me the thing you wrote about very, like some sort of impromptu daily meditations you could do in the elevator and elsewhere. Um, and it definitely was it, it struck me as somebody who written by somebody who had thought a lot and done a lot uh, in terms of this material. Yeah, and you know what's interesting, and this is what I really I, I sort of got this in your book, which is that you were very sensitive to the same things that I'm sensitive to in my writing, which is that. A, meditation is good for you. B, it's actually good for anybody in business or in work-related or in stressful environments. And C, people just hate the word meditation. Yep. Yep. They, they don't like meditation and they don't like spiritual because they think it's all – that means religion and prayer and chanting and all this stuff. But that's not what meditation is about. Nope. Nope. That's exactly right. Um, and so I've had to – um, you know, that's a battle that's going to have to be fought for, I think, a long time. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned this in your book um, when you were talking to your wife about or, or when, you, when you were considering whether you should encourage your wife to do meditation. You called it uh, a practice. And I think that's almost a better word for meditation than meditation, that, that it's it's a practice for whether it's relieving stress or uh, living a better life or becoming calmer or becoming happier. It's, it's, it's not the act of meditation itself. It's the other 23 hours when you're not meditating. You're practicing for those 23 hours. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, in terms of the s semantics, I mean, I've, we've had, I've had a lot of debates about this with um, – others in the mindfulness movement, for lack of a better term. And where I come down is I actually think we should use the word meditation, not because I think the word is great, but because I think you're not going to trick people into sitting down and closing their eyes and following their breath and and without calling it what it is. What I think is that we need to re, we need to co-opt the word the way uh, the gay community has done with queer. And, and uh, so, so when you say you don't think we can trick people, um, what what do you mean? Like, what would be like a trick? Well, I mean, I don't think you can call it, you know, as has been tried by people I very much respect. I don't think you could just call it mindfulness practice or mental ah. hygiene or mind fitness or whatever and just expect people to find themselves seated with their eyes closed, not saying to themselves, wait a minute, this is meditation. And so you, you just, well, we have, what I think has to be done is people have to change their attitudes about meditation. And the only way that's going to happen is if we, you know, if, if people step forward who are seen as quote unquote normal um, and say, yeah, I'm a meditator. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It, it's funny. Um, you know, I know one yoga teacher, very prominent yoga teacher, who refers who, who refers to meditation as mad attention, just because uh, while you're sitting in meditation, so many thoughts are going through your head that if you're not like a practiced meditator, it could kind of go off the rails a little bit. Um, so there's kind of the flip side where somebody who, you know, comes from like the yoga or meditation world, uh, you know, thinks it could also be misused. Uh, when when people just blindly go into it, 
Well, I mean, it probably it probably could be misused. I have a hard time. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about it being misused. I, I mean, mostly I think what people have to – I think there are two things people have to get over. One, the idea that it's baloney and only for people who live in yurts, um, and that's starting to happen because of the science. And two, this this – I call it the fallacy of uniqueness, this idea that, oh, well, meditation may be good for you, but I can't do it because I, my mind is just too crazy. Uh, yeah, that and, excuse is the most common excuse. And, then, and, and, and you know, that, that is the one that kind of keeps people from sitting down for like an hour or half hour. But I noticed when you first started, and this is in your book, when you first started, you just did five minutes for your, was your very first session. Yeah, and I actually counsel people to just do five minutes, and and because I, I see, you know, ninety percent of the people I talk to don't want to meditate ever, and and they may be more uh, inclined to do so if you say it's just five minutes out of your day, and ten percent are really eager, but I worry that of those ten percent that are really eager to do it, they they start with thirty minutes a day and they get burnt out and discouraged. So I really believe that you should start with five or ten minutes and tell yourself you're never going to do more. If it grows organically, great, but Everybody, no matter how busy they are, has five minutes, and, and so I, that's just a doable way to start. It's sort of a metaphor, you know, the um, to, to learn how to floss your teeth, first floss one tooth every day, and then gradually <laughs> they find that uh, uh, people end up flossing all of their teeth every day. Yeah. I think that's that's not a bad analogy. You know, I love actually dental hygiene as an analogy here because uh, – in the 1940s and 30s, before World War II, you know, most Americans did not brush their teeth, and it was only in the in World War II when the soldiers were ordered to brush their teeth by uh, the brass that dental hygiene became like a twice daily part of a, uh, of the American life. And I think you know these kind of public health revolutions can happen happen quickly. And I, I you know. I'm, my powers of prognostication are not flawless, but I sort of feel like that could be happening now with meditation. I believe that. I think I think in general, kind of a secular spirituality is starting to be much more common, particularly, you know, as you see things like, you know, stores like Lululemon become billion revenue stores catering to like a yoga audience. Uh, you know, you're starting to see this sort of mixing of commercial with, uh, you know, whether you call it spirituality or meditation or even religion, but it's everything's becoming a little bit more secular. I like uh, you know there's a there's a great book coming up by my friend Sam Harris who's not related to me um he argues that that meditation should you know he's a famous atheist writer and his his argument is that there is a form of spirituality that we should be embracing and that is meditation um and and it it can be a spirituality that doesn't require a subscription to any metaphysical program and I think that's an interesting a really interesting argument one that's probably going to have a lot of resonance yeah, and um, you know another book. Uh, I don't know if you've read "Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist" by yeah, Stephen Batchelor. Great book. Um, he he sort of says the same thing. He started out as a hardcore Buddhist, but then he realized he not only did he not really believe in any particular branch of Buddhism other than the meditation part, but he doesn't think Buddha believed in any branch of Buddhism other than the meditation part. And he kind of goes through line by line the different texts and sort of shows why. It, it was a fascinating book. I mean the 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 um the Buddha didn't know he was starting anything that would end in ISM. He didn't start, you know, Buddhism. He just you know, in 
circumvented this practice and uh, said you can take it or leave it. You don't have to buy any anything I'm saying. Try it out for yourself. I mean, he was like a real skeptic, and uh, he's his arg- his primary arguments are incredibly appealing to skeptics like me because there's nothing to join, no fees to pay, nothing to believe in. You just do the practice and see what happens to your mind. Yeah, and not only was he a skeptic, but that line that you just used, he was an excellent marketer. He by by simply saying don't believe me, try it out for yourself, as if he wasn't, you know, selling anything. That's actually an excellent marketing technique. <laughs> yeah, he was. And he built up a pretty strong organization. Like, you know, he was sort of kind of trapped between a bunch of different kingdoms that were warring at, with each other, and he had to survive. So the power of his organization was, was significant in order to survive, and he did it by, you know, using techniques like this. He did. In fact, I, I believe... There was a uh, king, uh, maybe slightly after the time of the Buddha, who uh, um, united all of India and uh, under the banner of Buddhism. Um, and they've uncovered some of the pillars that he built around the country. And basically, if you translate them, they say something to the effect of, don't worry, meditation is hard for everybody. Huh, that's real. That's really interesting. Well, let, let's let's get into how it all started for you, and I, and I like how basically you started your book, which is kind of when you reach this this peak of you know whether it was post trauma or self medicating or stress. But why don't you describe the the event that happened, and we can get right into it. Sure, I had a panic attack on uh, Good Morning America in two thousand four in front of 5.019 million people. And the... Uh, did, did they all send you cards afterwards? No, nobody sent me cards. Uh, you know, I think if you look at the tape, you can tell I'm struggling and I'm having trouble breathing. And um, people in the studio knew something was really wrong because I quit halfway through this little newscast I was supposed to be reading. But when you look at the tape, which is now like out there on YouTube and stuff like that, you know, it's obvious I'm struggling, but it's not like... Um, uh, like in broadcast news when the anchorman breaks out in flop sweat. Uh, so nobody sent me cards or anything like that, but I knew that I had had a panic attack and I was, you know, incredibly shaken. And it wasn't until I had another one, actually, about a year later, that I went, I went to see a doctor and he told me that the almost certainly the reason for the panic attack was that I was uh, abusing recreational drugs. And and, and let's talk about why you were abusing these drugs. So you you have been covering, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan for several years. And, you know, you even address in your book that for some reason it wasn't really, you know, affecting you in ways that maybe you suggested that other people might be affected. Like you would like what was the most, you know, horrible thing or disturbing thing you might have seen overseas? I mean, uh, we saw a lot, I saw a lot of disturbing things overseas. Um, I remember the first time I saw a dead body. I was in Tora Bora right after, uh, not, you know, not long after 9-11. And um, I was standing on the top of uh, a mountain. There were uh, Al-Qaeda fighters on the other side of the ridge. And um, I was with these uh, Afghan fighters who um, were basically bought off by the Americans to, to get, hunt down Osama bin Laden. And they opened... They came back from the front line and opened up a duffel bag and poured out all these body parts all over the place. And that kind of thing became a regular thing for me for many years when I was in Afghanistan, Iraq, and and, um, Israel and Gaza and the West Bank. But oddly enough, you would think that 
that the reaction to that would be some sort of post, you know, classic post-traumatic tr- uh, um, trauma. But in fact, it was like I got addicted to the adrenaline. And you hear this right. from troops, you know, that, that you get – this is why you sometimes hear about troops getting arrested for driving too fast when they come home um, because there's this thrill that you get used to on a daily basis that you just – nothing at home can measure up to. Well, it's funny because I think with returning veterans, it's sort of uh, a common mistake to just assume they all have post-traumatic stress. Some of them might have anxiety disorders. Some of them might be depressed. You know, there's, there's a wide range of uh, conditions that these soldiers are coming back with, depending on their own history and past. And there, there's even though they're kind, there tends to be kind of a blanket prescription for them. Uh, it's just not the case. Like you say, it could be an adrenaline fix. And in your case, like you said, you began to self-medicate in your book. You mentioned with cocaine, with ecstasy and uh, until it reached a boiling point. Yeah, I mean, uh, it blew up in my face. I mean, well, but, and also I would say, you know, there's there's a saying, um, it's a recession when my neighbor gets fired, but it's a depression when I get fired. And I think, you know, from, again, from, from reading your book, what I can see is that you had all this trauma and all this adrenaline from the time abroad, but then when, you're, when you were back home, you were dealing with kind of the nitty-gritty of, you know, what I would call office politics, who's going to get promoted to what position and how can I be good at my job and so on. So now you're being directly affected in an extremely stressful way that stresses out all of America. And that, I suppose, combined with the trauma and the drugs is what really got you to the boiling point. I mean, I think what the root of the whole thing really is this. I'm sure your uh, listeners will identify with this, the you know, ambition, the desire to be great at what you do, because it, the reason why I volunteered to go to the war zones in the first place, without ever considering the psychological consequences, was that I, you know, I thought I was, I knew I was green when I got to ABC at age 28, and I wanted to prove myself, and you know, that plus a belief that the work is important and a sort of an insatiable curiosity about the world. But the root of a lot of this is desire to do great in my job, and and when I got home, uh, I ended up, you know. Aside from all the self-medicating, I was also deeply involved in, you know, the internal competition at work, and and that any competitive job is going to have that for sure. Yeah. So what what was uh so so basically right after your panic attack or let's say your second panic attack, um, how was it going with your colleagues at work? Were you were were they kind of like backing off on giving you um, jobs or what was going on um, kind of internally there? You know, the panic attacks didn't have an effect on my career because the first one. While that was visible, uh, I recovered quickly, and the next hour I had to do another newscast, and I did fine. And and uh, I lied to everybody and said I had no idea what what the problem was. And so there was actually no real ram- there were no ramifications from that in any significant way. The second one was so mild that I don't think anybody really noticed at all. Um, it, it wasn't mild for me, but I was able to soldier all the way through and and handle it. So it wasn't like it screwed up my career, but when I realized what a moron I'd been and and had basically blindly self-medicated for this undiagnosed depression that I was was insufficiently self-aware to even uh, uh, notice, I realized I had to, you know, make some changes in my life. And that was kind of the beginning of this weird journey that that I write about in the book. Well, and it's kind of uh, fortuitous that, you know, Peter Jennings had assigned you the religious beat you know, both before and after your your trips abroad, because that kind of got you 
into that world of, oh, there might be other solutions other than either self-medicating or professional medication. Like, so you, you mentioned that you at first started taking clonopin, which is an anti-anxiety drug, but then gradually you got into the meditation. But part of that was, um, you know, first you met, uh, the, the best-selling author Eckhart Tolle, who's been featured on Oprah. He wrote the book, The Power of Now. He wrote A New Earth. Uh, what was, what was that meeting like? Uh, I mean, he kind of blew my mind. Uh, you're you're absolutely right that what happened after the panic attack was that I was uh, I had been assigned to cover religion, and I got really deep into religion in my journalistically. Even though I had my my whole childhood was that I you know I was raised in a very secular scientific household. My parents are doctors, and so I was very skeptical about all this stuff. And so it was a bit of a wake-up call to spend a lot of time around people who had a, a you know a transcendent view of the world. And then I I sort of stumbled upon Eckhart Tolle, and he he was so intriguing and so confusing to me simultaneously. I had never heard his anybody talk about the mind in a way that he did. I never even thought about the mind at all. In fact, the term is slightly annoying. But the, he uh, he talks about the fact that we have this voice in our head that is incessantly yammering away at us and always wanting or not wanting, comparing ourselves to other people, judging, uh, you know, casting forward into the future, remembering the past. And uh, when I read that, I was like, this, that's me. You know, that is, that is me. Uh, and it seemed like exactly what had gotten me into trouble in the first place with the panic attacks. And uh, yet, as I continue to read his book, he's, he's got all these weird, grandiose language and pseudoscientific claims and uh, talking about how his book is going to be, you know, is going to spiritually awaken you. And he, ta- and he claims that he lived in a park bench in a state of bliss for two years. So uh, I didn't know what to make of him. So as you said, I, I went and interviewed him and he's exactly the same in person as he is on the page. Equal parts, massively compelling and massively confusing. That's funny. I, I like the fact that, uh, you know, because I do the same thing. And, you know, if there's somebody you want to meet, oh, I have an excuse. I can call him up and interview him. So you, so you went out to, I guess, Vancouver or, or Toronto, right? To uh, He was speaking at a conference and you had, you had 20 minutes to talk to him? Yeah, he was. Uh, he lives in Vancouver, and he was in Toronto speaking. And they gave us, I think they gave us thirty minutes, or maybe an hour. I can't remember, but it was pretty. They were pretty militant about the the time restrictions. But he here's this guy who you know has million, he sold millions of books and has a huge following. Has been all over Oprah, and he's completely unassuming. So he's and I didn't think he was a snake oil salesman at all. I, I there was nothing about him that seemed insincere, but. But it's hard to square that with the things that he says about, again, like living on a park bench. And, and he ta- he's this kind of like um, – he's like a slow-talking little gnome. Um, he's just, he, his whole presentation is, is strange. It's not like – again, not like he's one of these self-help gurus that you think is peddling you something uh, half-baked. It's more just like you can't figure out how such smart things could be coming out of the same mouth that says such weird things. Well, you know, part of it is like now, let's say, you know, he he claims to have had his spiritual awakening, as he calls it, when he was age 29. And now I guess he's over the age of 60. So it's kind of a long time that he's had to sort of bake in his approach to things and his philosophy of things. And I'm sure that influences how and most of that time was spent in poverty. So I'm sure that influences his presentation. Yeah, I mean, I've actually had after 
you know, spending a lot of time very much not in any way believing him. Um, I've come around on him, and and I, you know, I, I think he has a lot to offer, a lot to offer. But there's, a, there, if you take as truth that he had a spiritual awakening, whatever that means, at age 29, uh, then it might be the case that the reason why he speaks in in weird, off-putting ways is that he just sees the world in a completely different way than the rest of us do, and maybe that's true. Now I wanna I wanna um, kind of scroll towards something you mentioned towards the end of this book because I get this question a lot. Like a lot of people assume or think or question that in order to be successful, you kind of have to be cutthroat. Uh, that honest, compassionate people that, that there's something that's. Uh, the opposite of success for them. So, and you, you mentioned specifically, you know, at the end of the book, uh, don't be a jerk. And, and you say, I'm going to read it. It is sometimes assumed that success in a competitive business requires the opposite of compassion. In my experience, though, that only reduced my clarity and effectiveness, leading to rash decisions. And so, and I agree with this. I think that, you know, dishonest people can sometimes win, but it's usually a, it's usually not long-term wins, or B, it kind of results in other, what I'll call leaks. Either they, you know, indulge in some other kind of uh, addiction or unpleasantness, or, you know, it hurts their health, or they end up engaging in criminal activity and they get caught. Like, it, it's not so easy for people who are who are jerks. I think I agree with you that the best way to succeed in business and Warren Buffett sort of shows this very well is don't be a jerk. And uh, maybe you can uh, elaborate on that a little on how meditation has uh, affected you in that way. I mean, I also think that, that they don't, the people who I know who are mean to get ahead or dishonest or whatever, they don't seem happy. And if you're honest with yourself about like what it feels like to be angry, rageful, jealous, uh, paranoid, it doesn't feel good. Um, and it may be, that, you know, there's this lie that we tell, tell ourselves that that can be the, what fuels our drive and gets us ahead. But I, I actually think that's, that's bull****. Um, uh, and I'm not saying that you, you should be so nice that you're like a palooka, uh, a punching bag, and you let everybody run you over. But there's a way in which you can view uh, the actions of the difficult people in your life or your competitors through a lens a more empathic lens that doesn't um, lead to rash decisions, that doesn't lead to unconstructive rumination and um, and rage, which I think we waste a lot of time and energy on. Uh, that, well, again, it's not a Pollyanna-ish view of the world that you aren't going to have difficulties and there aren't going to be people trying to stand in your way. I just think that uh, spending too much time uh, in a, working up your energy in a negative way is less constructive than people may think. I like to, I mean, I think, as you know, I call it in the book, the self-interested case for not being a dick. There is actually an enormous amount of science that says that compassionate people are more successful, more popular, and healthier. And, you know, the, the brain and body benefits of doing compassion meditation, for example, which is, we can talk about it at kind of, at first blush, an incredibly annoying practice, but in a, a kind of a compelling one after a while, uh, are overwhelming. And I think it transfers into, uh, into the professional sphere in a very powerful way. 
you know, I wanted to get to also some of the, I, I have your entire book like highlighted with notes. So excuse me if every time um, I go to a different comment, it takes a moment. But I, there was I one quote you that did. your father uh, told that you. you that I thought was very insightful, which is that the price of security is insecurity. And I think that's very interesting because whenever you try to kind of hold on to something, like let's say a job promotion or money or a relationship, but if you if you try to hold on to the security of that too much, you end up being insecure secure in your relationship to that object you're trying to hold on to, that clinging. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just trying to say that the uh, the fact that you highlighted the book the way I often do with books is like an incredible compliment. So thank you. The driving, the heart of the narrative from my personal selfish standpoint in the book is this urge to find an answer to how can you be happy and successful at the same time, which in my mind, and I think in the minds of a lot of people, is set up as like a dichotomy. Uh, and it's true. I was raised with this expression that my dad had bequeathed to me, that the price of security is insecurity. And I had um, worked incredibly hard on, and um, and operated on the notion that if you have to be worried and hypervigilant and wringing your hands all the time, constantly examining every angle in order to get ahead. And by the end of the book, I kind of found a way to do that while making myself less miserable. And that, to me, is like the one of the primary benefits of taking this whole strange journey. Well, you know, but you... you you know, part of meditation is kind of being comfortable with the now. And you, you mentioned a little bit how you can't succumb to the passivity of it. So how do you, and, and you refer to this in the book as being able to, uh, respond but not react, uh, to, let's say, negative events that happen to you. So again, in a lot of meditation, I think people just, um, let think, you know, living in the now, you kind of, you know, avoid worrying about the future and avoid regretting the past. But, but the, a big question that people have who don't meditate is, well, what am I supposed to do if I'm not planning for the future? Isn't that ultra passive? And what, what's the response to that? Yeah, well, you can, I don't think, other than Eckhart Tolle, anybody's able to live in the perennial now. I just, I mean, I've, I've been meditating for a couple of years and I, I, I do not live in a perpetual present moment awareness state. So uh, I, I'm not arguing against planning. I'm a huge planner. I think it's really important. I, I, I would give you two pieces of advice on this front. One from my uh, from a meditation teacher named Joseph Goldstein, who I really respect, who I was asking at one point uh, about the, what seems to be a Buddha, you know, a, a notion held in the Buddhist circles that you shouldn't worry, that worry or, uh, and planning is, is not, uh, you know, is, is somehow anti-Buddhist or against the now. And his argument was, no, 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 I'm not saying you shouldn't worry. There are things that are worth worrying about. But by the 17th time that you're running through what's going to happen if you miss your flight, you might ask yourself a very simple question, which is, is this useful? And that's a great corrective on on my former mantra, which is the price of security is insecurity. I, I think it's great to worry until it's not useful anymore. And uh, I think that's the right way to approach this in a way that will make you less miserable and less and, and easier to live with. Uh, so you're not carrying home the stress from work in an unnecessary way. And the second thing I'd say about that is um, this idea of non-attachment to results, which is um, we can we don't control the outcome. We live in a universe where, like, entropy is the is the fundamental principle. And so once we become comfortable with the fact that we can do everything 
we can do to affect the outcome, but at some point you got to let go and let the you know the universe is going to decide whether your company is going to succeed. Uh, then I think you're more resilient. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. I um I've written about a practice that I call uh, uh, useful, not useful, and I sort of think that for me the purpose of of meditation, of sitting down, you know, that between 30 to 60 minutes a day or 15 minutes to 60 minutes a day is so that for the rest of the day, it helps me to identify the thoughts that are useful or not useful. So I try to kind of label them when I, when I can, I can't always, but when I can. And one thing that I've noticed, well, well, so, so I don't know how they figure this out, but scientific studies have shown that uh, the average person thinks about fifty to 60,000 thoughts a day. Again, I have no idea how they get to that number. <laughs> but if you apply the 80-20 rule to that, then probably something like 10,000 of your thoughts are actually the only useful ones, and the other 40,000 thoughts are not useful. And it seems to be a much more pleasant way to live to actually eliminate the rather than spend a lot of effort increasing the useful thoughts, but better to eliminate the not useful thoughts seems to be a, a good way to, to live. I love that. I think that's, a, that's exactly right. Um, and then I would just throw one other thing in there, which is this concept, this very anodyne word, but kind of a revolutionary concept of mindfulness, which is the ability to notice what's happening in your mind at any given moment and not get carried away by it um, or to to pay attention to what's happening right now in a non-judgmental way. So there may be times when you're spinning off worrying for the 18th time about, you know, uh, how many subscribers your podcast has and you recognize that it's no longer use, useful. Maybe at that moment the best thing to do, uh, and there's neurological uh, support for this, is to redirect your attention to whatever's happening right now, like the feeling of your butt on the chair, the feeling of a cold glass in your hand. You know, that may sound completely mundane, but the science shows that the more you can train your mind to be focused on what's happening right now, the happier you are. Well, and I think also that becomes a, a trigger for creativity. So, for instance, uh, rather than worrying, oh, my gosh, I went down in rankings today or what's my number? What's my ranking system? Uh Becoming more creative about right now, what can I do? You're making a list, for instance, what can I do to market better? And that's that's something – so I'm in control of what I can do right now. And as you said, I can't control the future. So I can say, okay, well, on Twitter, I'm going to market a little better or on, I'm going to build a Facebook page. I'm going to do what I, I – I'm going to do my best, but then I can't control the results. Yeah, control the variables you can control. I mean, do you think that in part that a lot of this, you know – uh, a lot of this discussion stems from a misunderstanding. I'd be interested to hear your views on this. Like a misunderstanding of what happiness actually is. That people are worried that if they bring this practice into their life or if they get happy by whatever means, that they're going to be soft. Like people misunderstand or mistake happiness for complacency. Um, I was I was watching Rocky Three the other day on the recommend. I, I did an interview with uh, somebody from Fox News, and he 
he asked me the Rocky Three question, which I had never thought of. You know, at the beginning of Rocky Three, Rocky's really happy. He's the heavyweight champion of the world. You have this montage of him, you know, in all these advertisements and winning all these fights, and then it's cut between with shots of a very hungry, angry Clubber Lang and uh, Mr. T, and the and the in the eye of the tiger is playing over all of it. And and the the, the message that a lot of people draw from things like that is that if I get too happy and satisfied, I'm going to be fat and lazy, and I'm going to lose my next fight. Well, I, I wonder, or or what happens is, is that people get attached to a ranking system. So, for instance, many, most people get attached to money is their rank. How much they have in the bank is their rank in life. So that's right. the whole notion of keeping up with the Joneses. The Jones might have the Jones family down the street might have more money than me, so they have a higher rank in life. And in the corporation, when you buy into the corporate mindset, it's where you are on the corporate ranking that gives you your self-esteem and what you think is your rank in life. So now Rocky had achieved the number one rank um, and there was no more ranking for him. So he became dissatisfied, particularly when someone was challenging, uh, was implicitly challenging his rank. And I think we fall into that trap of having a metric that we use to judge our self-worth. So, for instance, you just had a, a book come out, you know, and um, in the intro, I mentioned the, the title of the book, but I'll mention it again, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress, and found self-help that actually works, a true story. So your rank has been very good on Amazon. But let me ask you, how many times a day, and maybe you don't, but how many times a day do you check your rank on Amazon? Oh, like every 30 seconds. Yeah, and, and, and I do yeah. that too. And you know what? My book came out, my last book came out 10 months ago, and I check it every day, you know, throughout the day. And every Amazon author does. Because we use the, we, we become attached to, to the various rankings in our life. And I think... You know, and maybe you have found also, I think meditation helps to detach ourselves a little from ranking ourselves. Yeah, or I mean, you just, for me, it's helped me notice the things that are making me unhappy, and so I cannot do them. So I noticed, by the way, that, that uh, checking the Amazon ranking was making me unhappy, especially as it started to fall. Uh, and so actually yesterday, I told myself I wasn't going to do it anymore, uh, or at least limit it severely, and I'm in a much better mood. And that is what, you know, that is the benefit of meditation. You are actually seeing on a moment-to-moment -moment basis much more clearly to put it in your terms, what is useful and what is not useful, or, or in another way, you know, what's, what feels good and what doesn't feel good. And yeah. uh, over time, that can be a huge value add. Yeah, I agree. Like, so, so eliminate, for me, eliminating looking at reviews, eliminating looking at uh, negative comments. Uh, I don't look at the metrics for my blog anymore. I do look at my Amazon rank uh, because – I don't know. I, I am addicted to that. And uh, I don't look at, uh, you know, I have metrics all over the place, just as you do, like Nielsen ratings on Nightline, I'm sure, are important for your job. So you, you, you look at that, but then you have to kind of say, well, uh, I'm doing my best and I'm not going to attach to the results. Because even if you look at the ranking, you can sort of separate out the, the number from your sense of self-worth. Yeah, I, I, look, I guess I would I, w I would put it this way. I wouldn't counsel personally, just, just speaking for myself, I wouldn't argue that you need to eliminate these things unless, of course, you, you really come to the conclusion that they're destructive. But it just um, 
doing them until they're not useful anymore. I mean, again, that Joseph Goldstein that we talked thing that we talked about before. Now, obviously, that, there's some tough, tough titration there. I mean, you have to decide when is it when is it no longer useful. But I think that the the more you practice meditation, the better you are at figuring out when rumination. It's like a thresher that that separates wheat from chaff. You can you can get a sense of when is the worrying or obsessing you're doing helpful and when is it not. But I definitely don't argue to people that you need to you know stop comparing yourself to others entirely. Uh, the certain amount of comparing, you know, I still do it at work. I compare myself to the amazing colleagues I have, and that forces me to up my game. But what I don't do or what I try not to do is to compare myself so much, make myself miserable, come home and be mean to my wife. Yeah, no, I think it's. I think that's really the key thing. Like, if you started avoiding every metric system, it's almost like what your father was saying: the price of security is insecurity. Suddenly, your your brain is is closing in on itself. Like, no, I can't look at this. I can't look at that. You're limiting yourself. I think the key is to be able to see these things, but not have it uh, negatively impact you. And I think meditation is a great way of doing that. I mean, one, you know, you, you, you reference a lot of scientific research in your book about meditation. One um, study, uh, I, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but one study uh, shows that meditation releases endorphins in the body, which is similar to the runner's high that runners get after they run for long periods of time. And, and the word endorphin is short for endogenous morphine. So it's almost like meditation <laughs> creates this natural heroin-like effect you know, without the addiction. So this this happiness and this sense of well-being that's unrelated to any metric such as money, for instance. Yeah, it's like this self-generated happiness. Although I will admit, and this may be different for different people, or maybe it just speaks to like the flaws in my personal meditation practice, that I don't find the act of meditating important while I'm doing it to be thrilling. Um, I find it to be kind of like exercise uh, in which it's a bit of a grind, but I, I do it because I know it's good for me and because it makes me feel good the rest of the day. And, um, you know, I, I know there are there you can go through different stages in your practice where it's particularly you know blissful, uh, but for me, generally speaking, it's like this bicep curl from my brain that I, I just do over and over again. Well, again, and and you use the word practice. It's uh, you. It's practice for the rest of the day, and for your job, and for your life, and for your relationships, and so on. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, and how has it affected your job? So, like, how, since you've started meditating, what's happened at work? You're you're the co-anchor of of Nightline. You're like at the top of the world. What's what's how how what's happened? Uh, I would say there are three biggies. One is my ability to focus has improved, and and that's not only because you know meditation is as I said before the kind of this bicep curl for the brain where you are constantly re- redirecting your attention away from mental wandering and back to a point of focus, uh, but also because I've gotten better at you know removing distractions in my life. For example, as I'm on the phone with you, I've turned off my computer, uh, so I'm only focused on talking to you. And I you know when somebody walks into my office now. I don't. I'm not checking my BlackBerry while they're in my office. I listen to what they have to say. Uh, so that leads to the second thing, which is that my relationships with my colleagues uh, are much better, and I find that they're that feels good. But it also can have some pretty, you know, wise um, uh, and real uh, strategic benefits uh, that you know, people 
are working with you instead of against you. It creates a, a good atmosphere, a more creative atmosphere. Uh, that doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean that I would let somebody push me around necessarily, but it, it does mean that generally speaking, to the best of my ability, I want to have as collegial and congenial an environment as possible, and meditation has definitely helped with that. And then I, I'd say um, the third thing is uh, just this ability um, – and they're all linked, not to get yanked around by my emotions. So um, there are times when, um, you know, we're in very stressful situations. And if I have, uh, as Dan- Daniel Goldman would call it, the emotional intelligence to, to notice that I'm starting to feel stressed and angry, but without reacting to it blindly, that's a superpower. And it can make you the person in the room who has the, you know, the, the clearest, most dry-eyed view of the situation. Let me add one more thing, which is that... Uh, a, a very spe- specific TV thing, which is that I, I got this job a couple of years ago as the anchor of the weekend uh, editions of Good Morning America, which I do now in addition to uh, anchoring Nightline. And I really struggled at the job. I really sucked at the job, to be honest with you, when I first got it. I was like, it's a very unscripted scenario. And, uh, you know, there are four or five anchors on the set at any given time. And anybody can say whatever they want. And it's a bit, it's very freewheeling. And I had come from a world in which I was a solo anchor reading off of a teleprompter. And I was very much in control of what was happening. And I tried to bring the same sort of like control uh, to the situation on the, on weekend GMA, which is like a five way ping pong match. And I, I found my, that I was completely stuffy and uncomfortable and unable to um, be as uh, witty as I would have liked to have been. And meditation and good feedback from my wife has helped me just drop all of my expectations, listen to what people are saying in real time, and react in that way and be in the ping pong game in a much more fun and enjoyable way. I love the scene in your book where your wife basically almost goes frame by frame showing you where you look tense or where you could have done things differently. I thought that was a great scene. Yeah, my wife, who, by the way, is not a meditator, but has heard me talk about this for years, one day found me sitting uh, you know, mournfully in front of the television watching back uh, you know, one of our shows, and she was tired of me feeling bad for myself and grabbed the remote and just walked me through every scene in every uh, interaction in the show where I got tense and, and started acting like a dork. And it, and she she said you got to let it go, which of course was a delicious um, co-opting of, of Buddhist terminology. Just drop your expectations, react to what's actually happening in the moment instead of some preset plan. Yeah, that's interesting. It's usually it's often I've seen a lot of public speakers take that advice where they say. Rather than having a fully prepared second-by-second talk ready, they view it as their entire life was preparation, and then they're on the stage talking about it, as opposed to scripting every minute. I'm sort of... I think that makes a lot of sense for people who are better public speakers than me. I, for public speaking, where it's where again, where I'm back in a scenario where I'm in full control. Generally speaking, I do a lot of preparation uh, if I'm going to give a speech. But when I'm going to do Q and A, I don't. And I find that when I'm actually interacting with other people, if I can listen to what they're saying instead of writing some speech in my head halfway through their question so that I don't answer their actual question, uh, things go much better. You have much more, you're, you're much more convincing to the crowd and people are more pleased. And then I can be funnier. 
To well, now, so the book's come out in the past few weeks. How's your life changed since the book's come out? Like, you, you, you're very revealing in the book. You talk about uh, your the drug use. You talk about all these things about meditation, which is obviously a, a personal topic. Uh, you talk about a lot of the interpersonal relationships you've had at work. Uh, how has this affected your relationships with your colleagues at work? Man, I was so stressed. I was so stressed about this book for so long with the, the revelations of the drugs and were people going to think, you know, the stuff about uh, the competition at work, was, was that going to make me look like a jerk? Um, and, you know, are, I'm no, is nobody going to take me seriously as an anchorman anymore? And uh, th- th- it's only been out for a week and a half, but it just none of that has happened. I mean, I, what I've found is that people are like, oh, okay, so you're a human being too. Um, the sun rose the next morning after the, after the book came out. It, uh, to, to, to what I think the, the takeaway is that people, everybody's living in their own movie. We're all the star of our own movie. So we don't really care that much what's going on in other people's movies unless they happen to be our spouse or our child. And uh, so I think at the end of the day, people see, seem to be glad that I told the story as honestly as possible and therefore sort of more open to my evangelizing for meditation. And I, I'll, I'll add to that a little bit, not knowing your colleagues at all, but just knowing from my own experience when I started revealing things uh, in my books or blogs about my past, I found that um, everybody kind of had the same experiences, more or less. So everybody kind of wears their mask to work, but they have, that's only the tip of the iceberg to mix metaphors. There's a huge iceberg underneath where you have all, you know, people were teenagers and then they lived in their 20s and then their 30s and they did stuff. And sometimes stuff is pretty disgusting and ugly. So everybody's got it. We only see kind of the clean exterior. That's the, the superficial selves we carry around at the workplace. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And um, it's a combination of the fact that people are less judgmental than you think, and also that people don't care about you as much as they as you think they do. They're 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 wrapped up in their own stuff. And uh, there was a, there's a great expression that a former boss of mine who I actually write about in the book, David Weston, who used to run ABC News, he you know had a few PR crises during his time here, um, and he once described uh, being in the center of a of a storm like that as being seasick. For you, it feels like the world's ending. For everybody else, it's like mildly amusing. Um, and I, to me, that has been one of the interesting takeaways from this whole experience. And uh, what's what's your plan now? So you're doing Nightline. You did this book. Are you going to do another book on meditation? Are you are you thinking about it? Was do you, do you, did you enjoy the writing process? Are you going to write more books? I, you know. I don't know what your experience was with writing a book, but I found it, it was awful. Um, it, it was just, it was just terrible. Uh, I, I just, it was like, uh, you know, doing dentistry on myself for four years. It, it took so much time. I really wanted it to be good and I just labored at it and labored at it. And so the thought of doing another one makes me want to take a million year nap, but I, I, I suspect that I probably will nonetheless. I, well, I, I kind of find writing books to be like uh, like taking drugs in a weird way, if you don't mind me using this analogy, in that after when, when you're on the kind of coming down point, you say, I'm never going to do that again. And then like a couple months later, you're like, oh, I really feel like writing another book. And you look, your book's doing well. You're going to get offers to do more books. So it's going it, – like it or not, it's probably going to happen. You're going to yeah. start coming up with ideas at the same time that people are going to start making you offers. Right, right. 
problem is I don't have any. I, I have an idea, but it's not commercial. Um, so it's not. Although having said that, you know, with the, the story with 10% Happier is that we we try to sell it. Uh, I thought it was a commercial idea, but we tried to sell it, and nobody wanted to buy it. When we first, my agent and I went out into the marketplace with this, literally one editor at one little imprint at Harper Collins was the only person who showed any interest. I, that was the only meeting I got. Hey, uh, maybe everybody wanted to be a hundred percent happier. Maybe they're like, "Where's the extra zero? Who wants to be ten percent happier?" I won't lie to you. One of the people at the publishing company did try to get me to change the title because she thought it was going to be insufficiently appealing to people. Uh, Ultimately, they let me keep it. But yeah, I think there's some people who don't get the joke for, for well, sure. I, I love the title because for, for several reasons. One is for people who try to be 100% happier, they, they often give up because you can, it doesn't – first of all, it doesn't make sense to put percentages to these things. But if you set too high a goal uh, for yourself like, oh, I'm going to be fantastically happy after I've been miserable – there's just there's almost no point. You're going to give up because you won't know how. 10% sounds like within reason. So that that's the first reason I like the title. The second reason is 10% compounded uh, actually is 100% every seven years. So thinking about tiny habits that build up or you know small incremental ways we can use to improve ourselves this is actually uh, an incredibly powerful thing for people to realize that you know small and steady wins the race. I mean, you're right about a thousand. You're right about a thousand things in that answer. Like the, the, it's definitely true the compounding nature of it. Uh, it's also true that it's ridiculous to talk about this in percentages, but that's the joke. I mean, uh, the, you know, uh, clearly I'm making a joke. At least most people seem to get that I'm making a joke. But the other thing is that you're right about is that this n- notion that we that is very popular in American culture that somehow we can read one book. Uh, and everything's going to be fixed in our lives through the power of positive thinking, which is just bullshit. And it's a damaging message to send to people when, in fact, there is something simple, scientifically validated, completely secular, completely mixed with whatever your religious views are or none, um, and, and will make you significantly happier. Well, well, and that said, you know, you said it, you, you can't read one, one book and be happier, but I do really think, and I say this with all sincerity, that your book works. It tells your story, it tells your skepticism, it gives the scientific research, and it tells your own experiences with meditation, plus some guidelines t- towards doing secular meditation. And I think that is very powerful towards pe- giving people a very simple guideline that they can use to make their both their professional and personal lives a little happier. I think I think your book does work as the one book, which is which is why I'm ecstatic you're on on this podcast. So, um, so, really so, so it works that. very well. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's huge for me to hear you say that. I, I hope you know. Again, I don't view the see that clearly as it says in the title. I don't see the book as like some sort of silver bullet for everybody for all the problems that everybody has. But if I could play a small role in in helping to 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 chip away at the huge PR problem that meditation has, I'll be ecstatic. I just I just think there's so much good that can be done in individual lives and also I mean think about think about the impact on society if this is the next big public health revolution. So if if I don't know what percentage of 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 the uh, of Americans exercise um, but if 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 uh, if the same percentage meditated it wouldn't just have a cardiovascular ramification. It would it would change the way we 
operate uh, vis-a-vis one another? What would the impact be on like road rage or bullying or politics? I, I think that there's a there are just huge there's a huge potential here. I would love to see just a little bit of that play out. Well, you know, it's an interesting comparison with exercising. So when, when someone exercises, they build up their own muscles, and it may or may not have an effect on the people around them. Like people might say, oh, he or she uh, built all these muscles. Maybe I can do that also. But with meditation, um, it's sort of like with one candle, you can light a thousand other candles. With meditation, you kind of have this inner light or this compassion that develops that does actually affect the people around you in this positive way. It ups their game as well, as opposed to just simply exercising your muscles. Yeah. Um, which, which brings me actually to, to one last thing, which is you mentioned about compassionate meditation as opposed – and let's say that's as opposed to mindfulness meditation. Uh, I wanted to ask you to, to define compassion meditation. Sure. So mindfulness meditation, just for anybody who's uh, gotten this far in the podcast and doesn't know, you know, the basics of it, is, is essentially uh, the beginning practice is you're focusing on your breath, that you're trying to feel the breath, um, and every time your mind wanders, you bring it back to the breath. And that really does a couple of things for you. It boosts your focus and, and also builds this ability to see what's happening right now with, in a non-judgmental way without getting carried away by it. Compassion meditation is trying to boost a different muscle, or build a different muscle in your brain, which is you know empathy and compassion. And um, what you do, and this is going to sound really dopey, but the, the practice involves picturing specific people and sending them good vibes, like may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe. <clears throat> when I first heard about this, I thought that sounds even more ridiculous than regular meditation. There's no way I'm doing it. However, there's an enormous amount of science that shows it actually works on a bunch of levels. One, it's been shown to make people nicer. Um, MRI uh, brain scans show that it builds the part of the brain associated with empathy and compassion. And uh, it's been shown among children to uh, make preschoolers uh, more likely to give their stickers away to strangers and among grown-ups uh, who are uh, more likely to give their money away to strangers uh, in a charitable way. Um, and also my favorite study is they, they put t- – tape recorders on people and found that um, they were saying the word I less and socializing more and laughing more. Uh, And being nice has also been shown to have all these health benefits, like it lowers the release of the stress uh, uh, hormone cortisol, for example. So there's just a huge amount of evidence that this is a beneficial practice. And um, I just find it so, the notion so radical that we kind of all think that we're born with a set level of niceness. I always did. I always thought I was like kind of nice enough, but nothing compared to my wife, for example, who's a doctor. Um, and actually, you can build this muscle and there are lots of benefits. And, and by the way, you're going to be happier. Happier and, and um, you know, like we were talking about earlier, more successful at work because your colleagues are going to respond to you. You're going to be more creative. You're going to be less bogged down by uh, the useless thoughts or the paranoid thoughts or the fearful thoughts. Uh, in general, I, I, I agree. I found that this has been a practice that has been had huge results in my own life. I mean, I essentially went broke repeatedly until I finally started some sort of practice. Really? Yeah, I mean, it it was just ridiculous how volatile my life was until I kind of finally said, look, I need to develop a a healthy, and I don't want to say meditation practice. I'm still shy about the word meditation, but again, finding some mindfulness practice and compassionate practice that allows me to label thoughts useful or not useful. 
and then that's something that I could practice all day long. I feel like I have uh, my own version of a twenty-four hour practice. Uh, I, I think that's awesome. I, and I, I really do. I mean, I'm not a, a meditation teacher, but um, I, I can imagine my meditation teacher saying that's great because what you're doing all day long is just uh, paying attention to what's actually happening instead of spinning off into fantasies or or, uh, or paranoia. And uh, that's the game. That's the whole game. You know, I do have a lot of fantasies, but I try to keep them under control. <laughs> The, 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 there's a uh, mindfulness, the word mindfulness the, the, has many translations, but one of them is remembering. And that's kind of what you're doing all day long is like you're remembering not to be a shithead or remembering that this thought is actually just a thought and you don't have to pay attention to it. Uh, and coming back to whatever's happening right now. In fact, I just want to tell you about one last um, study. At Yale, a friend of mine named Judd Brewer is this really impressive young uh, psychiatrist. He did this study. He was looking at uh, advanced practitioners, and he put their heads in the brain scan, and he found that uh, the the part of the brain known as the default mode network, which is operating most of the time for us, to, uh, for us, it's like the default mode that we operate in where we're obsessing about ourselves or thinking about the past or the future. In meditators, the default med- mode network goes quiet, not only during meditation, but when when they're not meditating as well. So what you're doing all day long by um, noting which thoughts are useful and which are not and coming back to whatever's happening in the moment, you are creating a new default mode. Yeah, I, I um, like I said, I, I do think uh, of meditation as a practice. Not Like you said, it's, it's actually a difficult practice while you're doing it, but it's practice for the other 23 hours a day. Like if you're sitting there in a lotus position, your legs are going to hurt, your posture is going to hurt, you're going to be counting the clock like when is this over? But it does benefit the other the other parts of the day when you're not meditating but you make use of what you've you've learned uh during that period of, you know, silent meditation. Yeah, 100%. And I just would be clear to your listeners, just in case your last answer scared them in any way, you don't have to sit in a lotus position. You can also just sit in a chair. I don't sit in a lotus position because I'm not flexible enough to do that. But So it's not really about the position. You don't have to hold your hands in any funny, funny way, light candles or anything like that. It's just about sitting down and doing this bicep curl for your brain. Yeah, and by the way, it doesn't even have to be sitting down. It could be yeah, lying down. Yep, you know, yep. Yep. I so think traditionally I it was sitting down because people would fall, students would fall asleep if they were lying down. Yep. I mean, I do it standing a lot. Um, you can do it walking. Uh, there are yes. four traditional uh, ways to do it, sitting, standing, uh, lying down, or walking. And I actually find walking to be extremely effective. Yes, yes, I, I agree. So, so anyway, Dan, I appreciate so much you coming on the show. You have a, a, a best-selling book, and it's a great book, 10% Happier, how I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, a true story. You're the co-anchor of ABC News Nightline, co-anchor of the weekend edition of Good Morning America. I mean, you've achieved incredible success, and and it sounds like you're really keeping it going with, with this book and with the practice that resulted in this book. Thank you very much. I'm doing my best, and uh, it was a pleasure to come on with you. As you know, I'm an admirer of yours. Thanks, Dan. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.